wait for a few of you to find your seats here. We're going to spend a moment in prayer, and then I have the privilege of reading God's Word. Uh, for those of you that want to find the passage, before I pray, it's Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 33. Let's uh, open in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, and we rejoice. We rejoice that you are redeeming your people, that you have, you're in the process of making us your people, of um, individually and corporately redeeming us. We thank you that you have us here this morning uh, to be under your word, uh, to uh, be blessed by your word, and we pray, Lord God, to bless others as well. Lord, we pray that this week we would be uh, changed people. The lyrics we sang this morning talked about your word uh, changing us. And we ask, Lord, that you would indeed do that, that we would not be the same individuals next week here at, at a corporate time of worship, but that we would be growing and increasing in knowledge and wisdom and grace. We pray for uh, the word this morning. We pray uh, for Pastor Mike as he uh, delivers it to us, that you would empower him by your spirit. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. So, uh, Matthew chapter 5 verses 33 through 48. I'm reading out of the ESV version. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely. You shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the just and the, on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do you not even the tax collectors do the same? And if, the, and if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You, therefore, must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This is the reading of the Lord. I'm glad to be here today. If you're glad to be here today, say amen. 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 I'm glad to be with God's people again on Sunday morning wanted to tell you 
Uh, when Michelle and I were uh, first married, uh, we lived in two big cities. Uh, first years we were married. Uh, originally, we lived in Los Angeles, West LA, Santa Monica in the 405. Anybody know that neighborhood? Um, so we lived right near there, uh, first few years. Then we moved from there uh, to Dallas. And I don't want to say we lived in the hood, but it was, it was a rough neighborhood where we lived in Dallas. It was rough. I'll give you a snapshot of how rough our neighborhood was. One night, middle of the night, our uh, dog is, is barking like crazy in, uh, in our little rental home that we're in. And so, like a good husband, I get up, see what's going on, right? Good husbands do that? Do they get up? Do the wives get up in your home to see what's going on if the dog's barking? So I get up. Um, I get up, and I'm peeking out the window to see what's going on out front of this urban landscape that we're in in uh, Dallas. And I'm looking out my window, and I see the single mom, uh, my neighbor, across the street with a shotgun, okay, uh, ready to go. There's commotion in the street, a bunch of young guys. And here is this mom with a shotgun. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, I am going to see a, a, a murder, a, 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 a shootout, a, and I'm just sitting there uh, watching this at 2 a.m. Well, 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 what's that? I didn't go out and help her. No, I didn't. My wife just said that. <laughs> that, was, that was not part of the manuscript. Um, no, I did not go out and help her. I'm sitting there, and I'm just like, I can't believe this is happening. So the guys in the street, the commotion street, they leave. She goes back in her house, you know, and I'm still just like, 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 <laughs> what, what is going on? It was not easy to go back to sleep uh, after that uh, scenario. Of course, you're wondering what happened. So I don't remember if it was the next day, next couple days, I, I talked to her. Um, yeah, by the way, <laughs> saw you with the shotgun out the other night. Uh, no, we, we seriously had a conversation like that, and her response was, the most shocking thing. Like this was somewhat of a routine thing that she does for the neighborhood. And what had happened, there's a bunch of young guys who were breaking into cars and they were just working their way down the street and stealing stuff out of the cars. Now how she's on patrol with her shotgun at 2 a.m. to do, I don't, I don't know, but she went out there to stop these guys and she actually stops them uh, before they get to our cars. So our cars weren't, uh, windows weren't broken out. And stuff wasn't stolen. So from there, we moved from Dallas to the serene foothills of Northern California. The whole time we're in Dallas, we never had a break-in. We had some unusual things happen like that and others that I won't tell you about. But we never had a break-in. We never had anything stolen. So we moved to uh, the foothills here. And like the first or second uh, winter that we're here, first winter we're here, uh, we're away in Southern California for Christmas vacation, and our home gets broken into while we're gone. TV stolen, variety of things stolen. And the reason I'm telling you all this is to tell you about my response to that and contrast it with another response. Uh, we came back from Christmas vacation, and our window was broken, and we found stuff stolen from our house, and we felt violated. And my main response was one of, of real anger, and justice. I was on the phone with those deputies, uh, not just that when we got home in the middle of the day, but over the next following days, wanting justice, wanting this person 
to uh, get caught. Let me contrast that uh, uh, with uh, a more recent uh, Another family living here in the beautiful foothills. Uh, their home was broken into just recently. This, our break-in was, was years ago, just recently. And what, uh, what really caught my attention about their break-in was this couple's response to their break-in. Uh, unlike mine, um, those of you who are familiar with uh, Les Miserables, I was kind of like the policeman in uh, that book, um, I mean, I was on a mission for revenge and justice for whoever did this. And this other family's response was kind of like the old priest in Les Mis, who uh, wants to show grace and compassion and actually show love to whoever uh, was committing uh, this crime. Their response um, spoke a lot of theology to me. And, it's, and it, their response shows that grace is beyond justice. And that's a major theme that I'm going to get back to again toward the end of this sermon. Now, as we continue our journey through the book of Exodus today, we're going to look at laws that deal with justice laws that are good and right, that were for ancient Israelite society. And there's a lot for us to learn from these laws uh, about God, and we're going to do that in in just a moment. And then at the end of that, we're going to look at what Jesus does with one of the principles in in these laws that we're going to look at, the most famous Old Testament legal principle, uh, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, what's, what's called the lex talionis. And Jesus takes that and goes someplace else. And he goes to grace. And we're going to look at that at the end of today's message. So let's pray once again before we get into these laws. And then we'll get into the New Testament as well. Let's bow our heads together. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the word of God. That you help us. These ancient words help us to change. Help us to become more Christ-like in our hearts in our thought lives, and in what we actually do. And so I ask now as we get into your word that you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit in the ways that each person here needs that would be above and beyond what any preacher could pray for or try to do. So we're asking that the Holy Spirit would do many things through the word today. In Jesus' name, amen. So Exodus chapter 21, if you would turn there. We are in this penal code or legal section or judgments uh, that are prescribed for ancient Israel and their, their uh, courts, their justice system, if you will, their legal justice system. We've looked at some of these last week, and we're going to look at them today. I put them in four different categories. We're going to look at Exodus 21, beginning at verse 12. And we're going to go through verse 27 and then jump into the New Testament. So I've put verses 12 through 27 into four categories. In the first category, so I'm going to jump around this little section of Scripture. The first category I'm calling judgments for fighting. So there's what to do when two guys are fighting and different things happen. Here's what you do. And those verses are what what describe that. Let's take a look at verse 12, Exodus 21. In verse 12, 
Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. Let's pause here for just a moment, okay? Because some people have a little trouble even with this principle here. Anyone who strikes a man and kills him shall surely be put to death. Uh, Some people have trouble because one of our commandments is thou shall not kill, thou shall not uh, murder. And so here we have the Bible uh, prescribing death right after it prohibits it. And how does this work? So the way this works is when the Sixth Commandment says we must not kill, it is talking about murder, not about judicial use of deadly force. So it's just simply a fact that God requires the judicial use of deadly force, at least for ancient Israel and even Romans 13, even in the New Testament, this is mentioned as well, that the state bears the sword. So this is just, this is just there, and we shouldn't be concerned about it. This is the punishment for someone who kills someone. This is a capital crime, and they should be put to death. So that's verse 12. Let's look at 13 and 14. However, if he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen, he is to flee to a place I will designate. But if a man schemes and kills another man deliberately, take him away from my altar and put him to death. So we see here in verses 12 and 14, if you commit what we would call first-degree murder, that's a capital crime. Uh, you, You are to be put to death for that. The basis for this goes back to Genesis, and really for all of this section, we go back to Genesis, and that human beings, the pinnacle of God's creation, we are made in his image. And if you are to assault or murder human beings made in his image, this is what is to come. This is a way of, of confirming and enforcing and protecting the sanctity of human life. First degree murder, capital punishment. Notice in verse 13, we have what we would call, I don't know, I'm not a, a lawyer, second degree murder or involuntary manslaughter or something like that. If he does not do it intentionally, but God lets it happen. That's maybe an unusual phrase for us, but just simply saying under God's sovereign hand, this death occurs, but it wasn't that person's intention. He is to flee to a place I will designate. So we see God in these laws is always on the side of the person that's vulnerable. Uh, The person that's vulnerable here is the person who's unintentionally killed someone because that person who's now dead, his family, is going to be coming after this guy. And he deserves punishment. He deserves justice, but not death. And so God provides a place for him to go until this more complicated issue, which doesn't call for death, this more complicated crime, uh, gets worked out. In our own uh, culture, uh, what would fit in verse uh, 13 would be, um, would be uh, drunken driving when a life is taken. Someone has been irresponsible, they have sinned, and they've taken a life uh, by crashing into someone when they're drunk, lost control of their car, but that was not their intent at all. So God provides a place of refuge for that. So that's verses 12 through 14, judgments for fighting. Let's look at verse 18 and 19. Uh, again, under this category, judgments for fighting. Verse uh, 18, If men quarrel and one hits the other with a stone or with his fist and he does not die but is confined to bed, the one who struck the blow will not be held responsible if the other gets up and walks around outside with his staff. However, he must pay the injured man for the loss of his time and see that he is completely healed. So not a lot to say here. Two guys are fighting. One 
you know, we could say uh, has the upper hand. The other guy's uh, out of work for a couple days. That guy who uh, won in that sense really lost and needs to pay for the couple days that this guy uh, is, is down. This last one under judgments for fighting, verses 22 through 25, is hugely controversial. And I could easily spend the next hour going through it. I would lose probably 95% of you if I did that, so I'm not going to do that. But let's look at verses 22 through 25. I'm going to go through it a little bit. If men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. Now, that's the hugely controversial part. I'll come back to that in just a moment. Verse 23. But if there is serious injury, you are to take life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. So here we have verse 23, this this historic and well-known Old Testament legal principle uh, in Latin called lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And the purpose of this principle is that retaliation or vengeance is not excessive. That, it's, that justice is proportional to the crime. That, that is the purpose of this legal principle here. The reality then and now is that people who have resources and who have money and who have authority often have a tendency to come down excessively, disproportionately, uh, when crimes are committed. Uh, those who are in power, those who have authority. And that's the purpose of this eye for an eye or tooth for tooth. Before we come back to the controversial thing, let me say one more thing about this, this uh, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. We know for sure that this is not intended to be taken absolutely literally. For the life for life part, it is. We've just learned you take a life intentionally, that life is taken. But this principle is not designed to be taken absolutely literally. How do I know that? Look at the next verse. If a man hits a manservant, verse 26, If a man hits a manservant or maidservant in the eye and destroys it, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of a manservant or maidservant, he must let the servant go free to compensate for the truth, uh, for the tooth, not for the truth. Uh, There is no, uh, it is not a coincidence here that we have a crime involving an eye and a tooth being lost right after this principle. And notice, the consequence isn't if you excessively discipline your servant or your slave, that's what's going on here, you excessively discipline him, it's expected and understood that a disobedient servant or slave is going to be disciplined. But if you excessively do that and knock out his tooth or knock out his eye, the consequence isn't the slave owner loses his eye or loses his tooth. The consequence is this man goes free. You cannot treat a human being uh, this way. So again, this principle is not designed to be played out in this barbaric way of, yeah, you knocked his eye out, now the justice system is going to gouge your eye out. That's not the way it was back in those days, and that is not the intention of this passage. So let's come back now to this controversy that you may not have even seen or you may may have seen in verse 22. So I read uh, from the NIV, and there are a couple different ways to translate and interpret verse 22 and following. So let me show you how the NASB has verse 22. We're in the context of two men fighting. 
And if these men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she has a miscarriage, is the way the NASB takes it, so that she has a miscarriage, yet there is no further injury, he shall surely be fined as the woman's husband, as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. Some of you are seeing the problem here if this is the way we translate and interpret this verse. And sometimes you can't translate without interpreting. Sometimes our translators are forced to interpret a passage. And that's what the NASB does here and what the NIV does as well. And what they have interpreted is this very difficult Hebrew phrase to say that this woman this woman's had a mis- miscarriage and the baby has died because of this fighting, this unintentional uh, death caused to this baby. So if we take it this way, the implications of this can be fairly strong because what we would expect here is we've got involuntary manslaughter going on. And there should be a place of refuge for this person to go because a human being has been killed. It's been done unintentionally. It's not a capital crime. But that's what we'd expect. But we have a much lesser consequence here. So many including evangelicals, including conservative evangelicals, including people that Pastor and Adam and I look to as uh, scholars and leaders like Bruce Waltke, who wrote the best commentary on Proverbs. He takes this passage in Hebrew this way, and like I said, I could take a whole hour going into it. I'm not going to do that. He takes it this way, and therefore there can be conclusions drawn about whether that life in the mother's womb is a human being or not. Wrong conclusions from my point. But do you, you get where I'm going? You tracking with me? Okay, you're not asleep. So this is the one way to take this. The other way to take this is the way the NIV takes it, the way I read it. The same Hebrew phrase can mean if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, the baby's fine. I think the ESV has it, the children come out. The ESV is just kind of punted, right? So they, they, have, they have it, what does that mean? The children come out. They, they, they've punted. So, so these two have, uh, I like the ESV, but they punt on this. So these two have taken a position, and they've taken the opposite positions on how to take it. So if men who are fighting hit a pregnant woman and she gives birth prematurely, but there is no serious injury, the offender must be fined, whatever the woman's husband demands and the court allows. So what do we, what do we make of this? Again, I could spend forever in this. Here's, here's what I want to make of a passage like this. And I want to draw a broader hermeneutical principle or a broader principle about how we interpret the Bible. This is what I want to say about this passage in in part. When we are studying the Bible, clear texts are given priority over unclear texts. You get that? If you've never heard that before, you should write that down or something like it. There's probably a better way to say it. Clear passages are given priority over unclear passages. And we should just be honest. This is an unclear passage. People who are much smarter than I, who know Hebrew better than I do, folks who translated the NASB, conservative folks, some of them go this way. Some of them go that way. Okay, so what I do know regarding human life now and life in the womb is that there are other passages that are very clear that speak about the sacredness and the dignity of human life even in the womb. The psalmist, fearfully and wonderfully made, my mother knit me together, and many other passages. So from other passages, we know that a human life 
whether in the last days or hours of life or whether in the first hours after conception, is a human being and is of, uh, it has all of the dignity and value of any human being regardless of age. So all that to say, that's where I'm going to leave you with these two things. Now, a couple th- as I read all of the stuff this week about this passage, and there is so much written about it, came across a couple things. One I really liked, this guy Klein says this. He says, the most significant thing about abortion legislation in biblical law is that there is none. Again, this is a law about two guys fighting. It was so unthinkable that an Israelite woman should desire an abortion that there was no need to mention this offense in the criminal code. So this is uh, what I want to take away. Uh, Clear texts give priority to unclear texts. This is an unclear one. And whatever our theology is about human life, about abortion, we're not going to base it on an unclear text like this. Uh, Riken, commentator who's been really helpful to me, uh, s- goes ahead and says some things about abortion in light of this text as well. He says, to put it bluntly, abortionists deserve the death penalty. That's a strong statement to read in a commentary. It should be emphasized that this is a sentence no private individual ever has the right to execute. Killing a doctor who performs abortions is also murder because only the proper authorities have the right to use deadly force. Nevertheless, the proper legal category for abortion is murder with all the penalties that apply, never in a private vendetta, but as a matter of public justice. What these laws show is that people who don't count to us still count to God. I love this last sentence. What, one of the takeaways from these laws, whether it is the criminal or whether it is the victim, These laws are showing us that people who don't count to us uh, still count uh, to God. So all of that under uh, judgments for fighting, this lex talionis, this this legal principle of eye for eye, tooth for tooth, is a principle for the courts, not a principle for individual or personal relations. That was brought out there. Okay, so that's judgments for fighting. The second category we have is judgments for parental abuse. We'll move through this more quickly. Look at verse 15. Anyone who attacks his father or mother must be put to death. So we have an escalation. uh, We have have capital crime here now for something that is not uh, murder. But we have the intention of murder. Anyone who attacks, uh, this could be paraphrased, a vicious assault with intent to kill. Uh, this isn't just you know, being upset and losing control for a moment. This is, uh, this is an intent to kill kind of attack. Anyone who does this to a mother and father must be put to death. Uh, notice here that fathers and mothers are receiving equal uh, protection, equal value uh, under an, an, an attack like this. The Bible in this scenario is egalitarian. God places huge, a huge emphasis and priority on, on authority and on the authority of mothers and fathers. And because of that, if it's some other person, uh, an intent to kill isn't a capital crime. But an intent to kill your mother or father is a capital crime in ancient Israel in, in their laws. That's verse 
15. Look at verse 17. Anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. So again, another capital crime because it's relating to father or mother, and this isn't a casual kind of curse. Uh, Riken again, is helpful here. He says, what is in view here is not a single act of disrespect, but a total repudiation of their parental authority. The man who cursed his father and mother disowned them. To be more specific, he treated them with such utter contempt that he refused to care for them in their old age. So in ancient Israel, this as well was a capital crime. So we've got judgments for fighting. We've got judgments for parental abuse. I think I see some mothers that are liking some of these, some of these uh, judgments, wanting, wanting some more severity uh, going on. But pay attention here, those of you talking in the front row. Okay? Um, <laughs> all right. Judgments for kidnapping. Verse 16. Verse 16. Uh, anyone who kidnaps another and either sells him or still has him when he is caught must be put to death. Human beings cannot be kidnapped. Human beings, again, are the pinnacle of God's creation. And if you were to do something like this in ancient Israel, uh, this is a capital crime. That's really all I have for judgments for kidnapping. So the last category uh, that we have is judgments for, uh, for slave uh, judgments for slaves or for servant abuse. And there's a couple of these. First one's in verses 20 and 21. Look there with me. Exodus 21 and verse 20. If a man beats his male or female slave with a rod and the slave dies as a direct result, he must be punished. But he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two since the slave is his property. So the NASB translates this very similarly, verse 21. The, the scenario, again, is a context of discipline. A slave owner is expected to discipline his slave. If he does this, uh, he must be punished. Verse 21 is the one that's a little startling. Again, the NIV says, but he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two since the slave is his property. Does that sound offensive, startling to anyone? Yeah. So, so let's deal with this, okay? Um, first off, I think the NIV translation and the NASB translation here is bad. They've chosen to use this word property, which is not good. Uh, the ESV is slightly better, but I don't think it's very good either. Let's look at how the ESV does uh, verse 21. If the slave survives a day or two, he is not to be avenged, for the slave is his money. So I know what's going on here, so this makes sense to me, but my guess is this doesn't bring clarity. Does anyone go, oh, I get this now? So this is the weakness, I think, with the ESV. Very accurate grammatically. This is what it says. But what does this verse mean? This doesn't help us to know what it means. The NIV tries to help us to uh, show us what it means, but they mess up the meaning. Uh, but he is not to be punished if the slave gets up after a day or two since the slave is his property. The, the Bible does not speak of a human being, at least in this passage, 
Pastor Adam's going to have some more challenging passages that come up. But at least in this passage, he's not speaking of a human being as property. That's not what's going on here. So that's a bad word to choose to translate the Hebrew here. So we go to a more dynamic translation that actually gives us the meaning of what's going on here. A normal reader will get the meaning. The New English translation says this. However, if the injured servant survives one or two days, the owner will not be punished, for he has suffered the loss. He has suffered his loss of money by this guy being down for a day or two. So it's expected that you discipline your slave, your servant. They use the word servant. Again, the New English translation uh, does because they say slave has this connotation in our American minds that is so far from the Hebrew word here, even though slave in some ways is a more literal word, we're going to leave slave behind and go with servant because this more in our minds describes the kind of relationships that's going on in ancient Israel between the, the slave owner and the slave or the master of the house and his servant. So number one, they've used the word servant, but then they've described what's happened. If he hasn't knocked his tooth out, if he hasn't done some kind of severe thing, in which case that slave is immediately emancipated and set free, this is a huge deterrent to not excessively dis- discipline your slaves. The other uh, passage that we've, uh, that, that's further along that we've already read. Um, but if he's just mildly down, and he's down for a few days, you've lost his work, and he rests. And that's your loss. That's what this passage is saying. So the offense... Uh, that comes across the NIV should not uh, be taken with us. Okay, so we all clear on these ancient Israelite laws? Okay, you still tracking with me? You're done talking? Okay, so, uh, so let's move now to kind of where we began and the gospel, okay? So at this point of the sermon, and at this point of preaching these Old Testament texts, if you're like me, your mind gets to a place where you're like, okay, so what? We've got a little bit maybe about the sanctity of human life here, but what does this have to do with us today? And what I want to do is flip over to Matthew 5, the passage that Brian read. So go ahead and turn over there with me to Matthew 5, where Jesus refers to the lex talionis, which is, occurs several times in the Old Testament, including Exodus 21, the eye for eye, tooth for tooth we just read. And Jesus refers to this in verse 38 of Matthew 5. Matthew 5 and verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Man, just let that sentence set in on you. This is our Lord. He's bringing up this great principle of Old Testament justice, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. But I tell you, believer in Christ, do not resist. Resist an evil person. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I've done a lot of resisting of evil people. Amen? I've done a lot of resisting. Jesus is telling us not to resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you, so now we're in a legal legal situation, I think both of these examples, cheek to cheek and the tunic, are, are, are interpersonal and justice legal court situations. That's the context here. If someone, wants to, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. 
someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Wow, this is, this is tough. This is tough. And this is important for us as people who want to live out the gospel to understand. So Jesus references Lex Talionis. And what he's not saying, although this is true, what he's not saying is Lex Talionis is for the judicial system, so let the courts have their way with that guy, Mike, the guy that broke into your house. Let the courts deal with him. He'll get it, but you just don't do it. That's not what this text is saying. That's true. But that's not what this text is saying. What this text is saying is this guy who broke into your house, and I'm going to get personal with myself here now. I'm going back to the beginning of my message. The guy that broke into my house, um, I'm virtually certain I know who he was. There would never been a break-in in our neighborhood that we were recently moved into uh, in the foothills here. There's a guy who had been in and out of jail, who was an addict, who I was working with and counseling. And we met in our house sometimes. And this guy knew exactly when I was leaving. And he knew when I was coming home. And I think he broke into our house and stole our stuff. That was my hunch then. That's my hunch now. I didn't respond to that situation in this way. If I had been more mature then and understood the gospel, Here's how I wish I would have responded. And I'm not putting justice aside. He, he needs justice, okay? That's not what this text is talking about. This, talks, this text is talking about how I respond to the, the cheek getting hit. Absolutely legitimate contextualization, I would say, is this guy breaking into my house, okay? Let's assume it was him now, the guy that I think it is. He's the one that did it. My heart is for justice to come. I'm the policeman in Les Mis. That, that was my, the response in my heart. What I should have done was said to this guy, hey, guy, um, I'm not sure if you're the guy that broke into my house or not, stole my stuff. But if you are, I forgive you for doing it. I forgive you because Jesus has forgiven me. While I'm still a sinner, he forgave me. And furthermore, if you need Money, food, shelter, whatever. I'd like to provide that for you. This is what God has done for me in my life, spiritually and physically. And this is what I should do for you. This is how what all of these laws in Exodus 21 are pointing to this kind of gospel ethic. Not doing away with the justice part, but saying in the church, in the kingdom of God, there is going to be, the kingdom of God is where Jesus reigns. He should be reigning in our church. There should be a whole other kind of ethic that's going on in our lives where our neighbors and community are going, oh my gosh, did you see how Mike responded to the guy who broke into his house? He responded like this crazy passage I've heard in Matthew 5 that I've never really seen anyone live out. But I didn't respond that way. That's how he's calling us to respond. One of the things we struggle with as preachers is qualifying and exceptionalizing our passages. 
So I'm going to do this, but I want the force to lay on what I've said so far. But if you've been around, banging around the church a while, you've probably struggled with these passages and thought about, well, gosh, radical application of this passage would lead me to having nothing, walking around, giving everything away to everybody, and getting nowhere. Now, we know that that's not right, but how do we know that's not right from the Word of God, our only source of infallible authority? So so I want to help us a little bit with that. There are times and places to defend ourselves. We're not always called to do Matthew 5 here, but I believe I was called to do it back then, and I didn't. And I think many of us and most of us, that's the message we need to hear today. There are times where we need to defend ourselves. Um, So some principles here. The New Testament calls Christians to go beyond lex talionis for the sake of the gospel. For the sake of the gospel. And I'll come back to that. I think the discerning issue here that we have to have when we're responding to scenarios is, is the gospel going to be advanced by me turning the cheek, by offering more to this guy who's robbed from me or not? If the gospel is going to be advanced, then we go Matthew 5. Then we turn the other cheek. Then we offer forgiveness. But sometimes we have to defend ourselves. If the gospel is going to be advanced by defending ourselves, Luke 12, when you're brought before synagogues, before synagogues, rulers and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or, or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Uh, Acts 22, Paul's speaking, brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. So there's a, there's a time to stand and, and, and to fight, whether that's verbally or whether that's physically in self-defense. I think those are appropriate. But when the gospel is going to be advanced, we should be willing to endure our houses being robbed, our cheeks being hit. This is the radical teaching of Jesus in Matthew 5. The New Testament calls Christians to voluntarily, joyfully, and discerningly endure hardship and even injustices for the sake of the gospel. We see this in 1 Corinthians 9. Paul says, we did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. This is a verse that, that, one of those verses I need to dwell on a lot. I should be willing to put up with anything rather than hindering the gospel of Christ. If the gospel of Christ is going to be hindered, and I can put up with an injustice or a slap on the cheek, then I should do that. That's, that's the ethic that Jesus calls us to. The context here is, is, interestingly, financial payment for pastors. And Paul teaches explicitly and clearly me that pastors, missionaries, those who are, who are taking the gospel, they deserve to be paid for their work. That's what he says explicitly. Then he says, I'm not going to get paid for my work. I'm going to make tents. Why? Because he knew in his context, if I get paid for my work, the gospel's going to be hindered. So I'm not going to take payments, a salary. He's going to get some money from this church. He's going to get some money from that church, but he's not taking a salary. He'll do whatever he has to for the sake of the gospel. The world is looking for us to live out this radical teaching of Jesus so that our God gets glory and so that we have joy in our hearts. And God is praised by more and more people around us. Let's pray together.
Father in heaven, we thank you again that you have given us your word. We see how throughout all of history you have given your people the word that they needed, the truth that they needed. You gave the ancient Israelites their law, and you have given us our teaching as well through the Gospels and through the whole counsel of God, including these laws in Exodus. Lord, I pray that we would be the kind of people that would be less concerned with justice, justice in the sense of revenge and and having to make certain that that person gets what they deserve. I pray that we would be more and more increasingly people of grace, people who are ready and eager to forgive, people who are willing to turn the other cheek or to even be ambivalent about our house being broken into if the gospel can be furthered by that. Lord, we ask that you would grow us, each of us, in these areas. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.